Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hi all, this is Paul Herman. I'm a general surgery resident at the University of Washington and I'm excited to be continuing the work started over the past couple years by the University of Washington Minimally Invasive Surgery Team led by resident Dr. Mike Waycamp and our MIS faculty, Drs. Andrew Wright, Nicole White, and Nick Citrullo. Dr. Waycamp has handed off the torch to myself and UW co-residents, Drs. Jamie Schnuck and Ben Vieira. We are excited to continue to discuss critical, cutting-edge MIS topics with our experienced MIS faculty educators. As we start a new season as a BTK subspecialty team, I will reintroduce our distinguished faculty. Dr. Wright is the Center for Video Endoscopic Surgery Endowed Professor, the Fellowship Director for the Advanced Minimally Invasive Surgery Program at the University of Washington, as well as the Director of our Hernia Center. Hey there. So I do predominantly foregut and hernia surgery, and about 30 to 40% of my practice is robotics. Thanks, Dr. Wright. Dr. White is Assistant Division Chief at UWMC Northwest Campus, Section Chief of General Surgery at UWMC Northwest Campus, Medical Director of UW Surgical Services and the Hernia Center, and Physician Chair of the UWMC Northwest Robotics Committee. Hi, everyone. I enjoy doing robotic surgery the most, probably about 70% of my practice. In addition, I do hernia and forget as well. Thanks, Dr. White. Dr. Citrullo is an Associate Program Director and the Director of Absite and Board Review for our General Surgery Residency Program. Hi, everyone. Uh, I uh, practice mostly general surgery and hernia surgery. Uh, and I'm kind of in between doctors Wright and White, where I do about 50% robotic and 50% uh, laparoscopic or open surgery. I'd like to start by thanking each of you for lending your time and expertise to the Behind the Knife listeners. During prior episodes, our team has discussed evaluating the robotic platform in general surgery with the ROLAR and RIVAL trials, which evaluated robotic-assisted versus laparoscopic surgery for resection of rectal cancer and inguinal hernias, respectively. We have also discussed cost and value as it pertains to robotic surgery, as well as robotic surgery's place in the rapidly growing field of surgical ergonomics. Today, we are excited to discuss robotic-assisted emergency general surgery, an area in which many surgeons are pushing the envelope, but still relatively uncharted territory when it comes to formal evaluation of outcomes. We'll discuss a recent systematic review and position paper from the World Society of Emergency Surgeons, as well as two articles it highlighted. The first focuses on robotic versus laparoscopic surgery for emergent post-RUIN-Y gastric bypass perforated gastrojejunal ulcers, and the second is on urgent robotic subtotal colectomy for severe acute ulcerative colitis. In addition to these studies, we will mention several others that help frame the discussion. As always, links to all mentioned studies will be available in the show notes. Ben, do you mind sharing why we're excited to review this subject? Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. So the emergency general surgery population is at particularly high risk for complications, readmissions, and mortality. According to a 2015 review by Havens et al. in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, more than 3 million patients are admitted to U.S. hospitals each year for emergency general surgery diagnoses, and those who undergo an EGS operation are up to eight times more likely to die postoperatively than patients who undergo the same procedures electively. In addition, about half of all patients undergoing EGS will develop a post-operative complication uh, compared to roughly 28% of non-emergency um, general surgery patients, and up to 15% will be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days of their surgery. 
I'm sure all surgeons know from experience this is a large, high-risk population, but I did not realize the rate of adverse outcomes was so great compared to the elective population. Dr. Satrula, when we consider this topic, what EGS operations should we think of? A nice study that came out in 2016 by Scott et al. in JAMA Surgery found that there are seven basic types of procedures that accounted for almost 80% of the national burden of operative emergency general surgery throughout the United States. These procedures include partial colectomy, small bowel resections, cholecystectomy, management of peptic ulcer disease, lysis of adhesions, appendectomy, and exploratory laparotomies. A number of these are already managed uh, laparoscopically, so the benefit of the robot may not be quite as evident, but several of the procedures are consistently performed open where the robot may have more of a benefit. So the benefit is obvious in MIS approach for emergency general surgery procedures. Um, it's been well established with four of them, acute appendicitis, cholecystitis, peptic ulcer disease, and small bowel obstruction in a large series done by ACS NISQIP database. This was published in Surgical Endoscopy in 2020. MIS approach was associated with a statistically significant decreased odds of 30-day mortality, surgical site infection, and length of hospital stay in all groups. For common EGS procedures in which the MIS approach has not become dominant, there could be a benefit in complications, costs, and even mortality if the learning curve or unique advantages of the robotic platform allowed a portion to be completed minimally invasively that otherwise require a laparotomy. Another reason to highlight this topic is that new technologies are often adopted prior to any demonstrated benefit. Dr. Wright, just how fast is the robot being adopted? So the robot's been around for 20 plus years, um, but really it's exploded in general surgery over the last four or five years. Uh, a study done by the Michigan group in 2018 uh, showed that the rate of robotic surgery in general surgery increased from 1.8% to 15% in just six years. Uh, this was most pronounced for inguinal hernia, where the proportion of robotic cases went from less than 1% to more than 28% over that time. Uh, interestingly, the increase in robotics uh, seems partially due to a move from open to MIS, but also from a transition from laparoscopy to robotics. Thanks, everyone, for that background. Let's dive into our studies. There has been a rapid growth in high-level evidence comparing elective robotic-assisted surgery to both laparoscopic and open surgery for various indications, primarily oncologic surgery and hernia surgery, but this does not yet exist in emergency surgery. Currently, there is no level one or two evidence in this area. Because of this, we'll start with a systematic review and position paper titled Robotic Surgery in the Emergency Setting from the World Society of Emergency Surgeons, and then focus on two of the largest retrospective studies that made up this systematic review. Dr. White, would you mind walking our listeners through the first review? The focus question of this review was what are the applications and outcomes of robotics for general surgery in emergency settings? The authors followed a Cochrane Collaboration Protocol and a PRISMA guidelines for systematic review reporting. So they created their selection criteria according to the PICO format. So population was adults requiring emergent or urgent surgery. The intervention was robotic or robotic-assisted general surgery intervention. The comparison was laparoscopy or open surgery, or no comparison, and the outcomes were operative and postoperative surgical outcomes. So they used two different reviewers 
looking at the articles through 2021, and they identified 3,767 articles screened by the title and abstract. 31 articles were retrieved, but only 10 studies fulfilled the selection criteria. Of the 10 studies distributed amongst uh, North America and Europe, they really looked at interventions of hiatal hernia, gallbladder, bariatric surgery, abdominal wall, cancer-related emergency. So due to the heterogeneity of the studies and the paucity of data, it was not possible to report composite outcomes. So instead, the studies were used to generate six position statements by a steering committee of 16 experts. And then it was reviewed by an international panel of 21 experts. As far as the position statements, well, there were quite a few. Um, robotic surgery in emergency setting is highly dependent on the surgeon's experience and should only be performed in appropriately equipped operating room trained staff. Robotic surgery in emergency setting may be considered in highly selected clinically stable patient only, may be considered in challenging situations. The use of robotic surgery for unscheduled and urgent operation needs to be implanted without creating scheduling conflicts in the op in the occupation of the operating room, and increased costs need to be justified. And the development of a new modular robotic platforms may contribute to increasing the applications of robotic surgeries in emergency settings. So the bottom line is this is a big meta-analysis, and there were experts who came out with six different um, position statements basically saying you need to be cost conscious, use the OR appropriately, pick the right patient, and make sure you have the appropriately trained staff, which all makes sense. Thanks, Dr. White. Dr. Wright, can you help us dive into the data of the largest studies in the review? Yeah, I think it's notable that they were only able to find really a, a handful, maybe a double handful of 10 studies of um, of these papers, and the largest paper only had 44 patients. So we're really talking about a fairly small number of patients that inform this uh, the systematic review. Um, the the study that we'll talk about first was by Robinson et al., published in Surgical Endoscopy in 2022, uh, Emergent uh, Robotic versus Laparoscopic Surgery for Perforated Gastrojejunal Ulcers. Um, this was a retrospective cohort. All of these patients had a gastro, uh, gastrojejunal ulcer after a Ruwai gastric bypass. It was a single institution. In that group of 44, 24 were done robotically, 20 were done laparoscopically uh, by three surgeons. All of them had robotic experience, although actually 23 of the 24 robotic repairs were all done by one person. Uh, no, there was no open comparison group. Uh, so when they looked at outcomes, the only significant difference was actually a faster in-room to surgery start time for the robotic group than the laparoscopic group. Uh, that's kind of interesting given that most people consider the robot sometimes takes more time to set up. Uh, there were no significant differences in any other factor like complication rate, severity, length of stay, et cetera. Um, however, it's important to note that the study was really underpowered to detect any of these uh, differences. Um, the total inpatient costs and procedural costs were greater in the robotic group, uh, roughly double. It was uh, $10,000 versus about $5,000 for the uh, procedural cost. 
Uh, but it's interesting to note that that was uh, inclusive of a $7,000, quote, robotic fee, unquote, that was assessed for the hospital that uh, was meant to account for financing the robotic platform. Uh, and this really highlights a challenge in every study that looks at the cost of robotic surgery, and that there are wildly varying ways that uh, studies do cost accounting for the robotic platform, uh, the disposables for both robotic and laparoscopic surgery, the instruments, uh, time in the OR, et cetera. Now, because of that, if you look across all studies in robotic surgery, cost estimates really vary widely. Um, however, in general, I think it's fair to say that the robotic approach does tend to be more uh, expensive in almost every study that's looked at this. Thank you, Dr. Wright. Dr. Citrillo, can you walk us through one of the studies regarding laparoscopic and robotic surgery in the colorectal population? Anderson and all published, maybe not surprisingly, in the Journal of Robotic Surgery in 2020, a paper called Early Experience with Urgent Robotic Subtotal Colectomy for Severe Acute Ulcerative Colitis as Comparable Periop Outcomes to Laparoscopic Surgery. The authors wanted to compare robotic to the laparoscopic approach as has been established that patients undergoing subtotal colectomy for UC benefit mostly from the minimally invasive approach, despite maybe a longer associated time with laparoscopic compared to open surgery. This was a retrospective cohort study uh, looking at databases comparing urgent robotic versus laparoscopic subtotal colectomies. Again, very small numbers. Uh, six robotic patients and 13 laparoscopic patients were identified between 2015 and 2017. There were really no differences in basic patient parameters, including ASA score, BMI, preoperative steroid use, C. diff infection, or other inflammatory markers. All patients in the robotic group and eight patients in the laparoscopic group did receive preoperative biologics. Neither group had intraoperative complications, open conversion, or any 30-day mortality recorded. In their outcomes, they found uh, as the robotic approach actually took 29 minutes longer uh, compared to the laparoscopic approach, and there was no difference in significant blood loss. Overall, there were six postoperative complications in the laparoscopic group and only one in the robotic group, 46% uh, in laparoscopic, 20% in the robotic group. And of these, 23% uh, for the laparoscopic group and zero for the robotic group were clavian dindo classification grade three or higher. Two of the laparoscopic and zero of the robotic patients eventually needed a reoperation. The robotic group had earlier stoma function, and shorter length of stay uh, by as in a trend, but neither of those uh, factors reached statistical significance, likely due to the uh, low power of the study. The authors did make a conclusion, however, that urgent robotic subtotal colectomy for ulcerative colitis is safe and potentially offers some technical advantages. Thank you for that summary, Dr. Citrillo. First, we want to applaud the authors on rigorously reviewing their outcomes and sharing their data in this new area. At the same time, we want to emphasize the lack of prospective randomized data in this area and limitations of these studies. The primary limitation of the studies is their retrospective nature and the risk of selection bias. To attempt to address this, both studies provided baseline preoperative characteristics showing no statistically significant differences in the demographics or preoperative clinical characteristics, such as laboratory values, steroid use, or ASA status in those undergoing laparoscopic versus robotic surgery. Dr. White, can you discuss any other limitations? The sample size and single institution nature of these studies decreases their generalizability. In the gastrojejunal ulcer study, one surgeon performed 23 of 24 robotic operations, further decreasing 
how you can generalize this. At the same time, the fact that this surgeon's outcome was similar with a trend towards improvement in complication rate. So it provides a powerful proof of concept. These studies, as well as the position statements, highlight the importance of case selection, which I think is best framed as a balance between competing factors of acuity of patient condition and the patient's stability or ability to tolerate pneumoperitoneum versus the benefits of the MIS approach. Regarding the patient stability argument, the study on GJ ulcers challenges the overall idea that the robot is uh, too slow or laborious for use in emergency surgery. And it challenges the idea that laparotomy should always be thought of as better for acute or time-sensitive conditions. Because what we found is that both time to incision, 25 versus 31 minutes, and duration of case, 85 versus 98 minutes, were shorter for the robotic approach. Dr. White, you have transitioned a significant portion of your practice to the robot. Are there any ways in which the robot improves your efficiency? Yes, Ben. I was not surprised by these findings, as the study authors state, with experienced perioperative staff, the robot can be easily draped and waiting for the patient to arrive to the room and quickly docked within minutes. We can't conclude that a robotic repair is necessarily more efficient for an experienced robotic surgeon compared to lap, but it does provide proof of concept that the robot doesn't necessarily slow things down. For instance, we can drape the robot while the patient is being intubated going to sleep. It cuts down on turnover time. In the past, all um, the onboarding robotic staff needed to be specially robotic trained. Now they're coming to us robotically trained and don't need, we don't need the specialized groups. Um, so I think with the evolution of doing more robotic surgery overall, we'll be able to have access with the emergency general surgery. Thanks, Dr. White. Dr. Citrulo, do you mind refreshing our listeners on benefits of the MIS approach in emergency surgery? There's a number of benefits for the MIS approach, including decreased wound complications or surgical site occurrences, decreased pain, decreased length of stay and mortality, and usually earlier morbidity due to less uh, incisional pain. Some literature shows some decreased respiratory complications following laparoscopic versus open surgery, which can easily be relevant in the EGS population, which, as we discussed before, has a much higher risk of respiratory complications at baseline. Transitioning cases in which standard of care is laparoscopy may not utilize these benefits as well, but if the robot could be used when otherwise patients would be more comfortable doing a laparotomy, uh, the robot could provide significant value for these patients. There's a group uh, in Carolinas that does a lot of work on uh, emergency general surgery procedures, and they have multiple papers where they're discussing the use of minimally invasive surgery as an expansion of emergency general surgery. And I think that as more and more general surgeons are more and more familiar with these minimally invasive techniques and properties, their use is going to be expanded in the emergency general surgery population. So though the individual procedure cost is likely to be higher with robotic surgery, we should think of value on a broader level. Dr. Wright, can you share how we should frame the value discussion on robotic EGS? Sure. So I think that a lot of times people look at the cost, and I think cost, first of all, um, is difficult to calculate. And depending on which budget line you look at, different people in the administration look this at, at this very differently. 
Um, so when you go to administration, for example, to argue for the availability of the robot after hours and the investment that that takes, you have to frame that from a value proposition. And uh, in the modern era, that real value proposition is getting patients out of the hospital more quickly. So when you talk about value, you look at outcomes over cost. So even if the robot is slightly more expensive than laparotomy, if you can get patients out of the hospital more quickly with fewer complications and with fewer uh, downstream complications like incisional hernia rates, that can be a net increase in value, and that can be your argument for after-hours access. Um, I think the other piece is uh, value is defined differently depend on, depending on who you talk to, and um, we have to be cautious not just to define value in terms of money, but also in terms of patient satisfaction and surgeon satisfaction. So another metric that we have not yet discussed is the conversion rate when we compare laparoscopic versus robotic surgery, meaning conversion rate to opened. Uh, but a few studies have looked at this. So one study from 2017 out of the University of Illinois, Chicago, titled, quote, risk factors for conversion to open in MIS colostectomy, end quote retrospectively analyzed their single institution outcomes for robotic versus lap colostectomies. They had about 1,000 patients, two-thirds of them underwent robotic colostectomy, and one-third underwent lap laparoscopic colostectomy. They found that there were a few main risk factors for conversion to open, uh, regardless of the modality of surgery. Uh, those risk factors for were being male, acute or gabinous colostitis, and age greater than 40. Interestingly, the robotic group had a much lower conversion rate to open at 0.15% versus 3.87%. And when the three risk factors I mentioned were all present, the conversion rate was 3.45% for the robotic group and 27.8% for the laparoscopic group. And for context, a paper in the American Journal of Surgery looked at the cost of conversion to open, and they found that in national sample of over 200,000 patients, the conversion rate from laparoscopic to open colostectomies was about 1.86%, and this resulted in, an, in a risk-adjusted cost increase of 259%. And really importantly, mortality was also higher amongst those who were converted to open. So conversion to open is an important metric, both in, both in terms of costs, but also in terms of patient outcomes such as mortality. Another study out of the University of Michigan analyzed laparoscopic versus robotic open conversion rates in colorectal surgery. So they looked at uh, patients who underwent elective laparoscopic and robotic colorectal surgery between 2012 and 2015. There were about 5,000 cases uh, that met study inclusion criteria, and ultimately the conversion rate was 18.2% for the laparoscopic group and only 7.7% for the robotic group. This was statistically significant. Dr. Citrullo, um, or Dr. White or Wright, are there any EGS cases that you've transitioned to the robot already? Um, I'll answer that. Um, one of the um, great advantages of the robotic platform is on bariatric patients. I'm not talking about bariatric surgery patients. I'm talking about higher BMI central obesity patients. So doing a uh, difficult acute cholecystitis patient with a BMI of over 50 um, is preferable doing it on the robot because you get forearms, you don't feel the tension on your arms, and you can see better. You have 3D visualization and you have a built-in IC green technology, whereas our current laparoscopic equipment is 
less than par for that. But one of the most significant cases has been in these higher BMI incarcerated ventral hernias. Because we are the hernia center, we have a lot of these patients that come to us from around the whammy region. And doing one of these operations robotically as saves them a laparotomy. So these are the specific areas that really need to be focused on and the cost savings that we've done in our group for this. Yeah, I think the other one I would add in there, in addition to the ventral and incisional hernias, is the inguinal hernia. Oh, and inguinal, yeah. The, um, the great thing about a minimally invasive approach, lap or robotic for inguinal hernia in emergency general surgery, is it gives you an ability to assess the bowel. So um, I think the laparoscopic approach, especially women with a femoral hernia, anyone with an inguinal hernia, uh, is really, really great. Now, you can do that laparoscopically, obviously, if that's in your skill set. But if it's not in your skill set or you feel more comfortable doing an inguinal hernia on the robot, um, I think it's a great opportunity in emergency general surgery. And potentially using mesh at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once you assess the bowel, you can see if it's safe, you think, uh, as a judgment call, whether or not to place mesh at that time. I think um, perforated ulcers is a potentially another one. Um, a lot of people aren't comfortable laparoscopically suturing. So, for example, a laparoscopic gram patch is not in every general surgeon's skill sets. But if you are comfortable suturing robotically, that may allow you to approach more patients in a minimally invasive the ability to do intracorporeal anastomoses for uh, skilled surgeons also is increased robotically compared to laparoscopically. Your ability to control the bowel, suture, uh, staple, and suture uh, is really enhanced robotically compared to uh, laparoscopic. Uh, and is, again, saving any incision that potentially is big enough to bring out uh, two loops of, or two pieces of bowel to anastomose uh, will likely have an impact both on respiratory and postoperative pain. So I think the ability to uh, do intracorporeal anastomoses is also hugely important uh, and one of the big benefits of doing this uh, robotically, especially for non-colorectal trained surgeons. Yeah, I think there are some cases, though, that um, I still do primarily laparoscopically. So, for example, I don't see a personally a lot of benefit for a lap appy, for example. Um with a potential rare exception of somebody where there's a question, is it an appendiceal mass, or you might have to do a cecectomy, but that's really uncommon. Agreed. I personally don't do robotic cholecystectomies, but definitely see the appeal of doing them when you have those really difficult stuck where your critical view is very hard to obtain. I can definitely see the benefit of doing those robotically. Uh, having an extra arm in there in the controlled binocular view can give you a huge advantage. I always think one of the scariest things about minimally invasive emergency general surgery is your ability to control spillage from intestinal contents. So if I have a high index of suspicion for perforation or pending perforation, I like to do those open as I find it's easier to control spillage, uh, but that is not universal in my opinion. That's a great overview of <clears throat> cases in which the robot is very beneficial, as we've already seen, in cases where maybe the robot isn't uh, as quite as much uh, benefit. But moving forward in the future, for maybe when Paul and I are in practice, are there cases that currently are not done robotically, but you do think will be in the future, and, and you all are transitioning your practice to doing them robotically? Maybe I can tackle that one first. I, I think, first off, 
um, the broad range of robotic surgery now includes even technically very complicated operations like, for example, Whipple. Um, not that you're doing that emergently, but the point being that I don't think that there's really any intra-abdominal operation now that can't be approached in a minimally invasive technique in the right patient. Um, I think what we're going to see is a gradual movement away from open approach to minimally invasive approach as the younger generation of surgeons is more uh, facile with MIS techniques. Um, I think the other piece of that is hopefully now that we're starting to see the specter of competition in the robotics market, we'll see some decrease in cost, and hopefully that increases our availability. Uh, right now, the biggest barrier to robotics and emergency general surgery is, is I think, not skill set. It's actually uh, access. And uh, that is something that's a, an issue of uh, how much the robots cost and how many robots we have. I think that maybe um, your generation may do robotic um, peptic ulcer um, gram patches where our generation does laparoscopic just because I don't think you're going to receive the training that we did in laparoscopic suturing skills. As much as we try, Yeah. Um, I will say, however, if you're comfortable ro suturing robotically, which I know most of the residents these days do, try really hard to make sure you understand the angles so that when you have to laparoscopically suture, you can do it. It makes it a little bit easier. Thanks. As listeners think about transitioning cases to the robot, do any of you have tips regarding the learning curve um, and that process from your experience? I think everybody uses the term learning curve without really appreciating exactly what it means. In my personal opinion, there isn't a number of cases to reach proficiency that's applicable across all surgeons. It's an individualized process where you develop a certain comfort level with the technology where you can feel that you can expand beyond the usual standard elective cases you're doing and use the technology in a different application. I think a prime example of this is the really development of the subtotal cholecystectomy versus a conversion to open when a laparoscopic cholecystectomy cannot be completed. The idea that there's a particular learning curve where someone can do laparoscopic surgery and know when they need to convert to open after they do 50 cases or 100 cases, I don't think really exists. I think every surgeon has to recognize their own comfort level with the technology and decide, can I use my skills in a slightly different way than usual to apply it to this emergency situation? So if you have the skills to do an elective robot sigmoid colectomy for diverticulitis, how many cases does it take where you could apply that knowledge base to do a robotic subtotal for Fulman and UC? I don't think there's any number that is true that's applicable across a broad spectrum, but each person has to decide in their own heart and head, can I really do this safely or do I need to do an open operation to be safe and really help the patient? So when we talk about learning curves, I think people expect if I do 20, I can do X with that knowledge base or technical skill base. And I have found that you have to have an individual number where you have done those cases and feel like you can take a standard case and expand it to a different situation. 
So I want to expand on that because you know how to do the operation. You know the steps of the operation. You know how to do them open. You learn maybe different exposure laparoscopic. You're learning how to expose it to yourself and move through those steps. And those are very similar to robotic. There are two key things that you have to develop, and everyone's different with this. Um, number one is the feeling with your eyes, right? Because you don't have tactile feedback. And there are people who develop this faster than others. You can't say a specific number. But the most important part is you may be very facile doing a laparoscopic subtotal colectomy, but once you get on the robot, you're, you may not understand the machine. This is a machine with a lot of different angles and a lot of different collisions. And it takes a while for you to understand how it moves without your instrument hitting the leg, hitting the face, how you're not colliding with themselves. And that's one of the things that I've mentored at a lot of the surgeons who've um, done their robotic training more recently, just going into the room, checking out, saying, hey, you need to burp that port. You need to move arm two this way because they're struggling in that situation. So we're all surgeons. We all know how to do the operation. Um, it's just really understanding the machine or the technology, I should say. Yeah. I think we have to recognize also that emergency cases are fundamentally harder than elective cases. And so your first time doing a case shouldn't be in an emergency setting. You got to be pretty facile in a straightforward case before you start tackling some of these emergency cases. Uh, if you want to get super nerdy, which since I'm a super nerd, um, <laughs> one of the things I think uh, we will see is that the robot allows really robust data collection that we don't have in open and, and uh, laparoscopic surgery. And I think we're going to start to see um, AI-guided quantification of surgical skill. And uh, that may actually in the future be what we use for credentialing, for example, instead of case numbers. Um, there's a lot of socio-political implications of that that we probably don't have time to get into, but maybe that can be a future behind the knife episode. So we'll summarize with the key takeaways from this episode. First, patients undergoing EGS represent a group at high risk of complications, readmission, and mortality. Second, there's not yet high-level evidence regarding use of robotic surgery uh, for emergency general surgery, but there's a growing body of retrospective studies demonstrating safe use of the robot in acute or urgent settings without statistically significant differences in outcomes. Third, establishing use of robotic EGS is more challenging than in the elective setting, but may provide particular value in this high-risk population. Fourth, uh, we think that the robot is most likely to provide value in cases that currently require laparotomy or cases that are often done laparoscopically with a high conversion to open. And last, there's an urgent need for more high-quality research in this area, particularly prospective studies. Um, and so, yeah, we encourage anybody interested to get involved. Okay. Thank you all for listening, and as always, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.